And today we're talking, especially as we lead into the holidays, on this theme of what we're calling a generous faith. Now, in many ways, a generous faith actually relates a whole lot to this idea of being on mission, and you're going to see why. Because a very central feature of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and if you're not a follower of Jesus here, welcome. You get to find out what a central uh, like message about Christianity is all about, is this idea of what does it mean to be a generous person. Now, in the passage that was read just now, Solomon actually read for us this passage from the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is this prophet who's actually giving these words from God to the people of Israel, and he's giving it to them in a very particular moment in their history. And this history is one that's fraught with so many challenges because they're in the middle of exile. So if you can imagine then, for the people of Israel, now I know that for us in the United States, being a world superpower, it might be difficult to actually really embody and embrace and understand what being in exile means. But if you can imagine, a people are plundered and sent out of their country as if they're refugees, not immigrants. They're sent out and they're in exile. Now, here's what happens, though, to the people of Israel. They're holding on to the promise that God is somehow going to restore them back to their homeland. But in the meantime, they're in this uh, kind of enemy territory, this place they know nothing of. They don't really, you know, care much for this place. They just want to get back home. Now, look at these words that Jeremiah, from God, speaks to the people in the midst of exile. Check this out. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Right? Why is he saying all this? It's because, can you imagine, these people are just like, man, I just can't wait to get home. God, when are you going to deliver us? This is not the place that we want to invest in. We want to invest in that other place. But look what he says. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity. Can I hear you say peace and prosperity? That's right. He says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city of Babylon, to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, isn't this extraordinary? God in the midst of this, right? Like I can imagine, like if I were God, I'd be telling people, hey, listen, just hang in there. Don't associate with the people around you. Plunder whatever you can so that you've got a lot when you make your way back, okay? Like, just hang in there. (laughs) But here's what God is basically saying to the people. Hey, while you're in exile, while you're in this place where you don't know how long you're going to be in this place, this isn't necessarily the place that you want to make a long-term future in. While you're there, seek the peace and prosperity of that city. In other words, give yourself generously to this city, even though this might be a place that you don't associate with, that you don't want to associate with, and yet even then I want you to seek the peace and prosperity of others. Now, in a city like New York, I mean, whether you're from here or whether you just kind of moved here recently, I mean, this is a city that oftentimes, like, people move here and we come to plunder the city, to consume the city. You know what I'm talking about. You and I, we're all looking for the best Korean fried chicken in the city. Right? We will go to Queens for the best empanadas. We will go to any which way to find the best places so that we can, can plunder the city. We come as consumers. And this is what we think of ourselves. You know what? New York's that place where I'm just going to live for that finite amount of time. I'm going to get whatever I can from it. Hopefully, a spouse. 
<laughs> and then if I can get a spouse here, you know, but maybe, but if I try to get a spouse here and then we end up breaking up and they're staying in the city, that's my time to leave the city, right? Because it's not really about the city. It's about me and my future here and what I'm going to build here. And then what if we get married and then we have children? And of course, I can't raise my child in this place. And so therefore I'm going to move someplace safer like New Jersey. I mean, this is the common story. Now, some of you have recoiled at that, even the, the mention of New Jersey. And you're like, well, I'm, Jersey City, it's close enough, right? Like, I mean, I mean, there's ways in which the way our mentality when it comes to the city is like, hey, let me just consume the city. Let me just take advantage of the city. You don't even have to be someone of faith to say that, right? I mean, this is what we come to the city for. But to have this posture of like, seek the peace and prosperity of the city, of others. Be generous in the way that you use whatever you have at your disposal. Now, that's the mentality that God is imparting to his people while in exile. Now, see this theme of being a generous person, though? It's not only unique to the story of the people of God in the Old Testament. Jesus himself would teach about what does it mean to care for others, even others who you may not disagree with, you may not want to even associate with. So check out this story, this parable that you've probably heard before. Whether you're religious or you're not, you've probably heard this story before. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 to 37. Check it out. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. An expert in the law was this professional religious person. Right? And check this out. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, there's another passage where Jesus would actually say, this is the great commandment. So you can imagine this expert in the law. He's mastered what the great commandment is. And look at how Jesus replies. You have answered correctly, Jesus answered, to do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, this expert in the law. He's trying for this gotcha moment with Jesus. And he says, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, Jesus is about to to, to give this such a subversive story. Check this out. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. Now remember, who's the one that asked the question? It was this expert in the law, this professional religious person who's trying to do this gotcha moment to Jesus. And look at what Jesus says. By the way, there's this priest like you, right? Who's, who's, who, look at what he says about the priest. The priest happened to be going, be going down the same road. He actually saw the man. It's not like he was preoccupied. It's not like he ignored the man. He actually saw the man. And what did he do after he saw the man? He passed by on the other side. Boom, there's a subversive moment, number one. But here's the second subversive moment. So too, a Levite. Now, who's a Levite? A Levite, that's the lineage of the people of Israel. That was the priestly lineage. So he's going at this again. The religious people, the people that are part of the church. The Levite, check out what the Levite does. The Levite also, when he came to the place, he also saw him. It's not like he was preoccupied. He had other things to do. He was trying to get to an appointment. No, he actually saw the man as well, passed by on the other side. Now, check out how subversive this is now. He says, but a Samaritan. Now, you've probably heard the phrase, good Samaritan. Now, back in those days, 
a Samaritan was known as like these half-breeds who believed in different things. They were people that weren't pure. They were people that kind of the Jewish people thought, oh, no, those are the people. They're not very close to God. In fact, they're far from God. They've deviated from who God is. Now, just think about who most Christians in the United States today, most Christian people think that, oh, it's those people who believe and think those different things, those different faiths, those different people. God forbid. God is not close to any of them, right? Like, I mean, in many ways, what Jesus is doing, he's, he's dropping the story where he's like, but a Samaritan. And like, people, I can imagine, like, oh, Samaritan, no. Can anything good come out of a Samaritan? And look at what Jesus does with this story about a Samaritan. He says, Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. When he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. Look at what it says. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I returned, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now he asks this question, which of these three, the professional religious Christian people or the non-Christian, the people who you think are anathema, the people that you think are far from God, who was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Isn't this subversive? Like, Jesus is basically upending the norms because usually it's the religious people who are the heroes. It's the clergy people. It's the ones who are so close to God. And yet, he tells this story and he's like, dude, it's not you. It's not you. What if it was someone who was completely different than you? Now, before you at me and you're just basically like, hey, Drew, like, so are you trying to say that Christians and non-Christians, like, the, the point of this story is basically Jesus is talking about how the mantra of anyone who follows him, the mentality that any of us are supposed to have, is that we are not a self-seeking kind of people. Instead, we are to be a generous people, even to those who are different than us, even to those who have different beliefs than us. In other words, even Christians, Christian faith is generous, even to those who aren't Christians, you see, you see this time and time again. We are not to be this insular people that are just looking out to protect our own. No, instead, we are to be a people who seek the peace and prosperity of the city. We are to be a people who actually like good Samaritans, even with people that we disagree with, even people that we may not necessarily like. What if we were to be a people who were kind and generous to all people? What if you and I, when it came to the cultures of our of our workplaces, our schools, our neighborhoods. There was just something of you and me that when people were around us, they just noticed, man, those people are just so kind. It's unusual in a place like New York. (laughs) What if the mentality, when people came across us, it was just like, these people are so weirdly nice weirdly generous with what they do. Now, Leslie Newbegin, who is a missiologist who actually wrote about kind of what does Christianity, when can it have its most potent power in the midst of a post-Christian secular society, much like New York? In the 20th century, he was writing, and he talks about how when the, the church can embody these two different things. Number one is to be steadfast in orthodoxy. 
What does that mean to be steadfast in the to, to really believe in something, to believe in the orthodox tenets of the faith. But meanwhile, it's not only that. So that's one thing, to have beliefs that others in the world might look at and be like, oh, that is so weird and backward perhaps. But it's also that we are a people who in every single way contribute to the flourishing of all people, especially the marginalized in a society. And what he says is, when we're able to do this by being steadfastly orthodox and being steadfastly caring for the poor and the marginalized and everyone in our midst, even the people we disagree with, what he's saying is it confounds both conservatives and liberals. Because conservatives are like, why are you associating with those people? Sorry, if you're a conservative, that's a generalization. But yeah, why, why why are you associating with those people? And for liberals, it's like, why do you believe in those things? But it confounds both. Why? Because when we can remain steadfastly orthodox, but incredibly generous, something explosive happens because we're actually demonstrating what the Jesus story has always been about. What if we could be a people who were just intensely and insanely generous? Now, what would that look like? Now, I'm going to talk about four different ways of being generous. So, for instance, from a Christian perspective, from a, for uh, one, one way that we can be generous. Number one is through our words. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, it talks about not letting any unwholesome words come out of our mouth, but only that which can edify. Now, what would it look like if we were a people that were uh, a people of blessing and affirmation and appreciation? In a city that is it's full of criticism and cutting and critique, what if we could be a people of blessing and affirmation with our words. Um, I grew up in a, in a family where words of affirmation were just not very present, you know? Uh, so for my, my dad, like, whenever he would give a word of affirmation, it was basically like, you only got a 99, right? Like, that, that was kind of his word of affirmation. Um, it was this quizzical way of pushing us to get perfection and to do the best we can. So I didn't grow up in a context or a culture where there's a whole lot of words of affirmation, of blessing. And yet, what's so interesting is that, you know, the scriptures talk about being a people of kindness and gentleness and with our words, edifying and uplifting others. Can you imagine in a city like New York, what would it look like if, like, you were just so encouraged, encouraging that, uh, and imagine if even in your workplace, you were like such an encouraging people that people were like, whoa, that person is just so encouraging. What if you were as a boss? Patrick Lencioni has this great phrase where he basically says, no one ever left a job for being encouraged too much. Can you imagine if your boss was that kind of person? Like just overly abundant in appreciations and encouragement over you. Now what if we as, as a people that follow Jesus were to be a people of blessing and encouragement? Uh, John Gottman, he wrote this book called Why Marriages Succeed or Fail. And he actually writes about the, the easiest predictor of whether a marriage will last or not is actually the ratio between appreciation and celebration and critique and, uh, and critique. And so he says this ratio exists. And he says basically the ratio that couples should shoot for, for a marriage to actually succeed and flourish is five appreciations per one critique. Now, some of you couples in the room right now are like, have I given five yet today, right? Like, I, you're like doing the mental calculus in your head right now. Listen, I know, I know, I do it too. 
Um, and the ratio, though, for marriages that don't make it is actually 0.78 appreciations per every one critique. So in other words, it's more critique than appreciation. That's the ratio for couples that will likely end up in divorce or not making it. Now, isn't that interesting? Like, what would it look like even if, if we were to be a people? What if just the culture we carried in the words that we use in our marriages, in our relationships, in our workplaces, in our schools? What if the culture that we carried was a culture not of cursing, but a culture of blessing other people? Imagine how that would change things. Imagine how that would change things in our church community, in our neighborhood. So, not only words, but also, secondly, time. The book of Hebrews talks about this. And time and energy are very similar, which is the third one, time and energy. Hebrews chapter 10, as well as Mark chapter uh, 10, verse 24 to 25, where Jesus talks about being a servant of all. What if the posture that we were to take when it comes to our time and energy is to be someone who gives of our time and energy for the sake of others? Now, some of you are immediately, because you are probably an overachieving, intense New Yorker, and you're like, how in the world am I going to do the Good Samaritan story when there are so many you know, uh, homeless people in our city or whatever else it might look like, and you've done the mental calculus, there's no way I can stop and handle all the other things that I'm doing. I understand that. Um, and there's actually a book by a guy named Adam Grant. Adam is actually a Wharton uh, professor at Wharton Business School, and he wrote this book called Give and Take. And this book is a New York Times bestseller. And one of the things that he writes in his book, Give and Take, it's why helping others drives our success. One of the things he writes about, when he first started doing this research, he thought that the approach that many have of being a kind and generous people, uh, person, if you were to take that approach, especially in the, you know, the dog-eat-dog like business world, what would happen to you, of course, is that you'd get run over. I mean, isn't that our greatest fear? Maybe you're starting out in whatever field that you're or industry that you're in is just like, I can't be a pushover, and therefore, I'm going to work harder and better and more cutthroat than everyone else. And so one of the things that he examines is this idea, are those people who do that, do they end up getting run over? One of the interesting findings that he discovers is that the people who actually live in a generous posture, though, actually end up ultimately being the most successful because they carry a certain kind of culture. Now, one of the things he talks about in his book, Give and Take, is he talks about these things called five-minute favors. Five-minute favors are basically, it doesn't cost a whole lot to, to me, but as I'm going about my day, if I'm carrying this culture of being just a kind, generous person, it just changes the game. Because now, I, ha- I constantly have this mentality, hey, I'm just going to give five minutes of my time, a five-minute favor to other people, whether it's connecting people that I think might be mutually beneficial in their relationship. Whether it's like buying an extra cup of coffee to someone that I think just would need some encouragement. You know, Ryan Hairston, who preached here a few weeks ago, and, uh, you know, he started this new job, and one of the things he talked about was he's like, man, I can't wait to buy, like, bagels and breakfast for our office. It's not a huge office. It's maybe six to seven employees in this startup or something. And he's like, I just want to just, I just want to bless people. And so he said that when he did that, people are just like, like, he brought in bagels or croissants or something, and people are like, oh, my goodness, like, who are you? Like, who does that in New York? Like, what? Like, and he's just, ah, oh, just Jesus. You know, I just got, no, but, but he, he was just talking. Now, it wasn't a big thing. Now, of course, it costs a little bit of extra money. 
But what it does to change the atmosphere and the culture of his organization and company made a pronounced difference in what was happening for him. Now, what would it look like if we were just kind of known as those kinds of people? Like, oh my goodness, like, why are you so generous? Why are those people just so kind? What they believe might be weird and awkward, but man, I can't doubt the fact that they really care and that they put their money where their mouth is when it comes to really being kind and generous people. Can you imagine how that would change things? And just a little, a five-minute favor. Now, here's the thing. When it comes to time, when it comes to our words, and when it comes to energy, here's what I'd like for you to do, just even right now. I'd like for you to just pull out your phone right now. Pull out your phone. And you're going you're gonna to Venmo at Drew Hyun. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, that wasn't funny. But uh, here's what I want you to do. I want you to just take out your phone, and I, want you to, I just want you to text someone, like a friend, a family member, someone that you haven't checked in with in a while. Just text them, just an encouraging note. Like, hey, I just thought of you right now, and I just want you to know I really appreciate you. One of my friends, um, she calls uh, appreciations, she calls it brain food. It's like each of us need some brain food to just survive. And many of us, Joe, are used to living in a world where, again, it's so competitive in this city. Like, when do we ever hear words of appreciation? Like, hey, I'm really thankful for you. I'm really glad that you exist in my life. Now, that probably took about 30 seconds. Now, can you go ahead and write to someone else now? Because this is just another 30 seconds. We're going to basically do this until five minutes. I'm just kidding. Just do this. Just one more time. Just one more person that you just want to bless with words. You just want to bless. It doesn't take a whole lot of time just to send a quick text. To say, hey, I was just thinking about you. And I'm just so thankful for you. And I care about you. And what if the mentality, when it comes to our words, our time, and our energy, with just these five-minute favors, what if we were walking around, and this is what Grant writes about, what if we just walked around with this mentality, like, got five minutes just to, to bless today? Just five minutes. What does that look like for me and for you to be a people of blessing in our workplaces, our homes, our neighborhoods, wherever we are? Now, the sum, yeah, I mean, in many ways, the sum of our words, our time, and our energy, what actually encapsulates all of those things at different moments is this last one. It's money. Money. James chapter 2 talks about, like, you can say all you want, I bless you to the poor, and yet if you just kind of don't do anything to put your money where your mouth is, then what good is it? What good is your faith if all you're doing is you're just putting up social media posts and liking and sharing um, posts that talk about caring about justice and the marginalized, and yet when it comes to your hands, your feet, and even your money, there's nothing really tangible that comes along with that. Now, here's the thing about money. Now, here's the thing. I know that right when I talk about money, like there's an immediate like, oh, he's really going to go there. 
because money is one of those incredibly sensitive topics to anyone. But here's the thing about money, and this has been true from the beginning of time as it relates to the topic of money. Money has its tentacles in all of us. Whether you have a lot of money or whether you have a little bit of money, money has its tentacles in all of us in different ways. It has its tentacles whether we grew up with with very little money. And so as a result, we're always kind of thinking like, oh man, we're tight-fisted about it. We're saving like incessantly. Or whether we're people that just likes to spend our money and we spend it in certain ways and we spend it because we live with this mentality of consuming. Or whether money is the thing that gives us a sense of status or whether money is that thing that gives us a sense of control, like we can control our situation or whether it gives us a sense of power that we have power over. Money affects all of us. And one of the reasons why Jesus talks about it, the top two things that he talks about are the poor as well as money. One of the reasons why is because it is a spiritual matter. Because what we do with our money really matters. In my experience as a pastor, when I talk to people about whatever topic it might be, it might be about uh, sex and something incredibly personal like that. And yet when it comes to, and they'll be very open about that, but yet when it comes to money, it's like, oh my goodness, are you really going to talk about money right now? Like money is like, it's like you should mind your own business, okay? (laughs) Now there's something about money that, again, it arises within us, this anxiety. And yet Jesus talks about it so freely. Now why? It's because like I said, money has these tentacles in us. Now, before I go into this, this kind of section on money. Here's what I want to say, okay? First, I don't want anything from you. I'm not asking you for your money, okay? I just want to get that on the table. Uh, at a previous sermon series that we did on generosity, I made it abundantly clear. My salary at Hope Midtown is $75,000, okay? Just, I'm not going to get a raise if you guys give more. Um, I $75,000. The last two years, my wife and I have donated our entire salary to the For the City building campaign. Um, and my wife is independently wealthy. So the reason why I say that is because I don't want your money. I don't need your money. I got my wife. Uh, no. <laughs> so listen, so listen, I'm, and the reason why I say this to you guys is, is just because, I, I, listen, if there's any kind of like, oh my goodness, that's what you you want our money so that you can buy like a private jet. No, 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 no. Like, like listen, I don't, that's not, I don't, Whatever you do with your money is not going to change kind of what happens, again, with my salary or whatever else. Um, and I, I just wanted you guys to know exactly where, where I'm at with this. Because I don't want anything from you. I want something for you. I want you to have the kind of freedom and joy that comes with being a generous person. I want you to know what faith looks like. Because faith, at the end of the day, money is the most tangible thing. That really demonstrates whether this faith thing is real or not. And so here are some guidelines. When we generally talk about money uh, at our church, here are some of the things that we talk about. Number one, we talk about it should be in this order, give, save, and spend. Now, most people in the city, it's spend, then you save, and then you give. Maybe if you have something extra or something moves in your heart during the holidays. Now, Again, a Christian perspective and approach is to give first, is to be generous first, and then to save and to spend. If you're from an immigrant background like I am, like the order that you often use is probably save, and then you save some more, and then you save, then maybe you'll give, right? Like, I mean, I mean, that's the mentality that I grew up in. 
And so as a result, like I'm not, I may not be a spender, but I am a saver, let me tell you. But I realize, see, any of those approaches that isn't generous first, it still shows the tentacles that are in each one of us. Now, this is not to say that saving is not right or that spending is not right. In fact, go ahead and do those things. It's to say, no, the first thing that we're called to do is to be a generous people. Now, and we haven't even gotten to the point of generosity. I'm just simply talking about the principle of being a person who is not controlled by your money. Because at the end of the day, that's what money does to us, right? It has its tentacles in us, especially in a town like this, which is all about money, which is all about how much money you have and how much money uh, I have and whether how much we can kind of compare each other based on these different um, standards of success and notoriety, whatever it might be. And so giving, saving, spending is what we encourage. Number two is giving 10% of your income. Now, in the Old Testament times, there was a tithe, which was a first fruit, which was 10%. But scholars believe it was anywhere between 10% to 30%. The reason why was because it was a nation state back then. So politics and religion, a lot of those things, and temple taxes, those were all combined. So scholars don't think that it might be 10%, it might be 30%. All we know is in the New Testament, this paradigm of like, no, no, don't you understand? All of your money belongs to God comes into play. Now, we talk about this principle of 10%, the reason why, we, why it does. And you might say, is it gross or is it net? Listen, I don't know. But that very, very, even in that question, it reveals how, again, we're looking to try to save as much as we can. Or we're looking for whatever I can use to spend and not be generous. But here's what I know about 10%, especially in the city, is it hurts. It hurts to give 10%. Whether you have a lot of money or whether you have a little bit, it hurts a little bit. Now, here's the thing. Giving is supposed to be sacrificial. We are supposed to do something that says, you know what, I want to do so. I want to take a faith step because that's what faith is. Faith is basically saying, God, I'm going to trust you with this so that to see So that you can show off and show who you say you are. A God who is provider. A God who gives lavishly to those who give. Now, here's the thing. Um, We give 10% to our local congregation. You don't even have to give 10% to Hope Midtown. Okay? Just give somewhere. It can be a cause that you really love and believe in. We hope as a church, one of the reasons why we do Extending Hope, one of the reasons why we continue to invite people to give above and beyond towards different causes is because we believe that generosity marks us as the people of God. And I believe, I truly believe that the story of our church and the history of our church has been one of generosity. And because of that, I believe that God has continued to multiply those resources. Uh, I mean, we bought a building in Midtown, and we bought it not for ourselves. We bought it for the city. That's what the campaign was called. And that building is now serving 30 different organizations and churches around the city. Um, Yes, we're able to host some Friendsgiving gatherings and other gatherings at the building, but you'd be surprised at how many youth gatherings and organizations that are serving college students and uh, Hope for New York, which serves the marginalized communities. How many organizations have used this building? Because our mantra as a church and our belief is that when we are generous, God will multiply those efforts. And so you don't have to give to Hope Midtown, but give to someone else. Um, Now, 10%, again, is a guide for us. And then we um, try to give above and beyond towards other causes. I I wrote down the For the City campaign as well as Extending Hope. 
Um, and again, for us, my wife and I are constantly in these conversations. What would it look like for us as a family to continue to lean into generosity, to be a people who are constantly growing in greater generosity? Because here's what I realized. The more wealth we accumulate, the harder it is actually to give. Because it's like, wow, we're going to give that much? Whoa, really? But what would my parents say, you know? What would, but what would it look like if our faith, if we really believe that God is a generous God and he could provide, what would it look to entrust to God that we can give generously? And, and that's why we encourage this. You know what's interesting is the Apostle Paul there's this passage that's often read. It's Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. You may have even heard this passage before. He basically says this, I can do all things, can I say all things, through Christ who strengthens me. And you know what's interesting about this passage is, it's not like Paul is basically saying, I can do all things. I can throw a 95 mile per hour fastball through Christ who strengthens me. Uh, Or I can, you know, in a day, make investments to multiply into millions of dollars through Christ who strengthens me. I I mean, in many ways, this verse can be taken as like this, you know, this way to baptize whatever wish, hope, and dream you have, right? I can do all things, like all those people that thought that I wasn't cool in middle school, like they're going to think I'm cool. God, do it, you know? No, he doesn't do any of it. It's not about that. If you actually look in the context of Philippians 4, it's about how Paul, he has, uh, he says, whether I have a lot of money or have a little bit, I can do all things. It's basically a verse about money. It's basically a freedom that basically says, hey, listen, whether I've got a lot of money, whether I've got a little money, I'm going to be okay. Because those tentacles that I was talking about, that money has over every single one of us. He says, I'm free from those things. Because Christ is the one who strengthens me. Christ is the one who guides me. Christ is the one who owns it all. And let's be real. Whether you're someone who has a lot of money or you have a little, isn't that kind of heart disposition the one that all of us long for? A heart that's free from the anxieties of money? A heart that's free from all the weird competitiveness that somehow drives us to make decisions that we end up regretting. What if, what if I told you that today, what if I told you today, that freedom was offered to you? What if today I told you that in Jesus, when we begin to be generous with our words, our time, our energy, and even with our money, that it's, it's actually a sign of the freedom and the joy and the contentment that we have in Christ who strengthens me, who's provided for every need and who will continue to provide for every need.